Ecclesiastes 7. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is the good thing, and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter, but the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When the times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. The righteous perishing in their righteousness, and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked, and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does, who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your, in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered. Adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things, whilst I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This, was, this only have I found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. This is God's word. Uh, good evening, let me add my welcome then, if we've not met. My name's Matt, Matt Fuller. It's lovely to uh, have you uh, with us, no doubt, on a bank holiday weekend. Some are out of town, but some are in town, I can see. So it's lovely to have you uh, with us this evening. Let me lead us in prayer as we turn to wisdom. Our Father God, we as gathered people here tonight, there are many abilities and talents and gifts in this room uh, vast abilities and opportunities ahead of all of the people in this room. And yet we cry out for wisdom. Wisdom to know what is best. 
And in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, wisdom that admits its limits. Wisdom that comes to you and says, we need you. Sometimes we don't know what is right in life, but we have you. Father, force us back upon yourself with relief, with joy. This evening we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the, uh, the question gets asked, and in one sense, chapter 7 answers it, is chapter 6 and verse 12. Who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days that they pass through like shadows? Who knows what's the right thing? Who knows what the right thing is for you to do and for you to do? Who knows what it is? And there are times in life when we just don't know. That could be on the sort of macro level. Who knows what will happen if there's a Brexit vote? Who knows? George Osborne says, well, we'll every house ought to be 4,300 pounds uh, uh, worse off. That seems quite specific. George, you can't make a prediction six months in advance, but anyway, we won't go there. Who knows what will happen? The other side says, oh, everyone will want to trade with us. Who knows? Who knows? It makes it very complicated vote, in my opinion. Who knows what will happen uh, at the end? But the writer here says, who knows what happens for a person? Should I take this job or that job? I can't discern. Who knows? You can't discern. You don't know how it'll work out. Should I stay here or or move there? What is best for my family? Who knows? You can make an educated guess, but you know what? You cannot see the future. Oh. Oh. Well, thank you very much. That's the most unhelpful sermon of, uh, of the year so far. Well, no, because he'll say wisdom is, well, essentially it's going to come down to trusting the Lord. But if you're joining us tonight, then we've been in this book of Ecclesiastes for a number of weeks now. And the teacher, the teacher is on a quest to find purpose, to find satisfaction in this world. And he keeps on saying over and over again, 37 times in the book, maybe 38 if you want to translate one ambiguous one, that life is meaningless. Literally, life is vapor or mist. You can't grab it. You can't say, I'll put that in my pocket and work it out later. You can't grasp hold of it. It's fleeting. It's temporary. It's futile in a sense. And we said it's quite hard to get the full orb sense of this word. So in recent weeks, we've gone for a different word every week. So everything is temporary, says the teacher, or everything is futile. Let's try another one tonight. Let's try enigma. Or enigmatic. Ooh. Ooh, pleasing, gratifying for the preacher. What are you going to do? Uh, enigmatic. In other words, it doesn't quite fit. That's the purpose of that one. It doesn't, well, hold on. There's a piece and I can't quite, what's that one doing? Yeah, life is like that sometimes. What, uh, oh, I thought I understood, but now, oh. Enigmatic. Enigmatic, says the teacher. Everything is enigmatic. That's how I'm going to translate meaningless tonight. Although if, you, if you've been with us, there is a progression through the book. So, uh, so far in chapters 1 and 2, uh, the teacher has emphasized that enjoyment has to come with a gift. Excuse me, it has to come as a gift from God. And you get the first time there's a refrain that goes through the book. You get it in the first time. Uh, chapter 2, verse 24, a person could do nothing better to eat, drink, and find satisfaction. This is from the hand of God. He progresses a little further in chapters 3 to 5, really stressing that all of the events of life fall in the plan of God. 
And at the end of chapter 5, you get the same refrain again, chapter 5, verse 19. It's the same essence. You can eat and drink and enjoy things. It's a gift of God. And then in chapters 5 to 8, chapter 8 ends with the same refrain. But here he's saying, okay, so God has set the times and events of this world. But, but, so less emphasis in the second half of the book on things being meaningless. He's sort of growing in his confidence. Okay, so there is a God and he has set things in the right time. He has, there is a time for everything. And yet, I'm still a bit confused. So in the second half of the book, he increasingly becomes like an annoying pupil in a class. The teacher's trying to teach. And the pupil says, yeah, but, but what about, and the teacher gives an answer. But what about miss? What about, and the teacher gives an answer. But I'm not sure, but I don't really understand this bit. And, and, and it's a bit like that. The teacher just keeps, oh, hold on a minute. But what about justice? And what about people dying when they're young? And what about, and in that sense, he's really helpful because I think he asks many of the questions that, that you and I would want to ask uh, about life in this world. He's never satisfied with a simple answer. And that's why many people love this book. One writer put it this way, and I thought this was very helpful. Ecclesiastes is a kind of backdoor that allows believers to have the sad and skeptical thoughts that we usually do not allow to enter in at the front door of church. I think that's helpful. It's not bad, the summary of part of what Ecclesiastes is trying to do. If you arrive here tonight and actually you just find it quite hard to sing, praise the Lord, to God be the glory. Because it doesn't feel like that at the moment. Well, the teacher would say, yeah, no, it doesn't, does it? It doesn't always feel like that. Some days, you know, yeah, I can sing. And other days, it's just, I'm barely dragged through the door. Well, Ecclesiastes is a bit like that. We've been saying last comment and then we jump into it. Uh, I think at least I'm quite pleased with this equation, so I keep showing it every week. Ecclesiastes works a little bit like this. The teacher would say, if you want to know a satisfying life, you need to have meaning and pleasure. And in particular, um, a meaning that, uh, that death can't destroy. Otherwise, whatever you achieve in life, whatever your achievements, gone very quickly. And pleasure that knows that all that you have in life is a gift from God. You don't grasp it too tightly. You don't try to squeeze too much pleasure out of it. It's only a gift. It comes and it goes. And if you know those things, a meaning that death can't destroy because you'll go to be with God forever through Jesus Christ, and that everything you enjoy in this life is a gift. It's not God. It won't satisfy you ultimately, but they're good. Well, you can enjoy them. Tonight then, we're trying to find out or unravel a little bit of the enigma. Let me put it this way. Uh, we're going to say this. Wisdom is found. Wisdom is found in walking with sorrow, in accepting our limits, in trusting our Savior. Okay? Those three. Wisdom is found, one, in walking with sorrow, two, accepting our limits, three, trusting our Savior. First, then, chapter 7, verses 1 to 14. Wisdom is found in walking with sorrow. Chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than fine perfume. Yes, very sensible, very sensible. Better to have a good reputation than a bottle of Chanel number 5. Yes, quite right. And the day of death better than the day of birth. Oh. One might suggest that's a little gloomy as an observation. 
there's a particular season in the church life here. There's someone born every week uh, at the moment for the last sort of eight weeks or so. It's a bit rough to say that to their parents. What does he mean by this? Well, look, verse 2 continues. It is better to go to a house of mourning than go to a house of feasting. Why? Why so grumpy? Well, here's the reason why. For death is the destiny of everyone. And the living should take this to heart. So he is not saying, he is not saying it is always better to mourn and be glum than to feast. You see the life of Jesus, you see him doing all sorts of things. He has a lot of good meals. Jesus eats a lot of meals. There's a big emphasis in the, in the New Testament. He's dining. He's always dining with people. Good meals. No problem with enjoying them. And there are, there are many positive occasions which are full of hope and we should cherish life and we should give thanks when there are lives born and give thanks when things go well. Of course. But he's saying, times of sorrow remind us that this life is penultimate. And that what we're doing will not last. And even the days of magnificent joy and celebration will end. This life is penultimate. And actually, death will remind us of that. All will die and give account of our lives to God. And in that sense, in that sense, not everything, in that sense, it's better to go to a funeral than to go to a wedding. They go to a christening. They go to the maternity ward. Because it reminds you of those things. A a few years ago, there was a a lovely lad um, uh, who was at church in Balham, uh, which we're linked with, Christchurch Balham. James Marr died aged 28 of cancer, leaving behind uh, a wife, broken dreams. 28 is young to go, isn't it? But what was most striking was what he said to his pastor one of the last times that he went to visit him. Which was a very very unassuming guy. He said, you know, I think think I've done more spiritual good for the church in dying young than I would have done if I'd lived for another 40 years. He doesn't know that. He can't say that. It's a very modest thing to say. But you get what he's saying? Because age 28, someone dying who was well-loved and well-known in the congregation, everyone went, oh. But what matters? That happened to him. And he had a lovely wife and a great job and a nice flat and, oh. You see what he's saying? And the writer here is saying, it's good to go to funerals, you know, and engage emotionally, mentally in them. It reminds us what matters. These days are temporary days. Now look, in that sense, in that sense, verse 3, uh, a sad face is good for the heart. In that sense, uh, verse 4, it's good to go to the house of the morning. In that sense, can I just say for one or two amongst us, he is not saying it is good to always be glum. Can I just say that to one or two? There is nothing godly in being glum. 
There is not. There is not. Don't sort of baptize your gloominess in the words of Ecclesiastes 7. He is not saying that. Rejoice is a command given in the Bible. Rejoice. And again, I say rejoice, says Paul. It's good to take joy in things. But sometimes it's good to be reminded this world is temporary. That's what he's saying. You know the Robert Browning Hamilton poem. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and never a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. That's what this is saying. It's rare that you meet someone with real depth with real spiritual maturity who has not walked with sorrow. It does teach you. Chapter 6, verse 12. Who knows what's good for a person? None of us would ever choose sorrow. Um, I know what I need. What I really need for myself is a good dose of sorrow, a good dose of things going wrong, probably a death in the family. That's None of us are ever going to say that. That would be perverse and odd. But sometimes... Sometimes it does us more good than days of joy. And a two-year-old daughter dying is not a waste. Lived a good life, was well-loved, brought great delight, and will be seen again in glory. Well, with that in mind, let's let's pick up the pace a little bit. So the teacher then moves on verses 5 and 6. So given that it's good to walk with sorrow sometimes, who do you walk with? Who are your friends? That's what the teacher wants to challenge us about. So verse 5, it's better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than listen to the song of fools, like the crackling of thorns under the pot. So too is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Apparently thorns make a sort of crackling sound under a pot if they're burned. Give you no great heat, don't last very long, but make a pleasant sort of poppy noise. So they're fun to have, but don't do you any good if you're trying to boil something. And that's what he's saying. Wise friends won't just always laugh and say, yeah, what are you doing? Oh, great. Wise friends sometimes will be awkward friends. Will challenge what we're doing. Question us. And at times, you want them. Better than friends you just giggle with and have a laugh with. You want both. But you do need friends who will challenge you. It's a couple of years ago now. Uh, a woman in the church, uh, a married woman here, was having an adulterous affair. And what was once was very striking, one of the things she said was, she was having an affair with a guy at work, uh, all my colleagues at work and my friends at work tell me I, I should leave my husband and go with him because I'm more fun when I'm with him and I seem more cheerful when I'm with him. The fact that they'd only ever seen her with him and not with her husband anyway. Um, her friends just affirming her. Just, yeah, 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 go on, go on, just do that, do that. Yeah, 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 whatever gives you. No, that's not helpful advice. At some point in that situation, you want a friend to come along and say to you something like chapter 7, verse 26. Do you know what adultery does? I find more bitter than death the woman who's a snare, whose heart is a trap, whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner shall ensnare. It's just a, a snare and a trap for you. You want someone to come along and say that. You don't just want friends who say, yeah, do whatever you want. Get rid of him. Go with him. Sometimes 
We need those sort of friends. If we have friends that merely speak of the superficial, merely have a laugh with, merely speak of clothes and sports and hobbies, nothing wrong with those things, but they never talk about anything of substance, then we'll not grow. We'll be superficial sort of people. We do need friends who, well, occasionally will annoy us because they'll say, why are you doing that? Is that sensible? It's a strange purchase. Did you really need to get something quite so absurdly expensive? Did you need your car to be gold-plated like the ones that sit out on Harford Street? <laughs> gold-plated? Uh, whose car? No, no. The, um, you know, friends sometimes will say, what are you, really? You're going to do that? Oh, right. You've, no, don't do that. Oh, you're just, you're going on holiday. You just, just the two of you, you and your boyfriend, just the two of you for a month in a one-man boat. (laughs) Don't do that. You get the point. You get the point. The teacher says, do you know the sort of friends you want? You want friends who say to you, chapter 7, don't just live for now. Live for eternity. Don't just be satisfied with the gifts of now. Find joy in Jesus Christ. You want those sort of friends. And those sort of friends will help you uh, avoid the mistakes, I think, of the rest of the, uh, this section. So they'll help you avoid the mistakes of 7 to 10. So extortion. Friends will stop you doing that. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool. A bribe corrupts the heart. Well, friends will say, don't take the quick buck. Don't do that. You're mad to do that. Uh, impatience, verse 8. The end of the matter is better than its beginning. And patience is better than pride. Good friends will help you grow impatience. Um, verse 9, similarly, don't be quickly provoked in your spirit. Anger resides in the lap of fools. Uh, friends will say, you, know, you say, verse 10, why were the old days better than these? And friends will say, it is not wise to ask such questions. Don't say that. It is not wise to say it was better in the old days. Everyone has said that for the last 5,000 years. Anyway, don't go on about that. So friends, if you're wise, you'll surround yourself with friends who will rebuke you. I say, what are you talking about? What are you doing? Why are you going to do that? Don't do that. You're talking nonsense. You want those sort of friends. Because chapter 6, verse 12, who knows what's good for a person, but you can take counsel. Oh, and you do need to trust God in all circumstances, verses 13 to 14. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. 13. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? Not morally crooked, but difficulties, troubles in life. God has put a kink in the road. It isn't just a smooth, freshly laid motorway. There are potholes and bends and kinks that he's put there. I take it all of us could name something crooked in our path. 
could be massive, an obstacle, massive that dominates every conversation we have. It just lurks in the back of our minds all the time. And we'd love God to remove this thing. could be minor. There's always something we'd like changed. But he wants us here is an echo of Genesis or the teaching of Genesis 3. God made a good and perfect world. But mankind rebelled in Genesis 3. And the world fell. And so God cursed the world in response. It's a fallen world. There are thorns and thistles in this world that bring now frustration to it. And so I guess we're faced with a choice when we come across something crooked as verse 13. We can say, oh, everything's meaningless. The whole of life is an enigma. There is no sense to this world. You can rant at God cry out, it's unfair, or you can do what the teacher here does and say, well, good times come from the hand of the Lord and bad times, he allows those to take place too. And knowing that there is purpose in the crooks of life, in the potholes, in the obstacles, knowing that there is purpose in them, Oh, it does make a difference. It doesn't remove them. But it changes how we feel. But why does God allow them? Why does God allow these crooks in the path of life? I don't know. I don't know about the, the, the details of them. A whole number of reasons the Bible will give them. It could be to, as he said in chapter 7, to turn our hearts from this world to the next. So we look forward. It could be as much as that. It could be to reveal, actually, we can't have two masters. You either trust the Lord or whatever it is, money. And it just reveals where our trust is. So we're exposed and, and, and jump and put our trust in him. It could be that. It could be to, to make us realize that actually only Jesus Christ is the place of security. There's nothing else, there's nowhere else you can go for security but him. It could be that. It could be to reveal other sins in our hearts. That, that that's, We're allowed to be put under pressure to expose them. It could be that. It could just merely be to display God's grace in our lives as we endure with godliness. It could be that. I don't know. A number of reasons the Bible will tell us that God allows such things, but he allows them. God has done these things, good and bad. Because he knows what we need. Who, chapter 6, verse 12, who knows what is good for a person in life? The Lord does. And he gives us what we need. Karl Rove. Karl Rove was, um, well, naughtily he was described as George W. Bush's brain. That's a slightly naughty description. But he was his electoral strategist. He was a vast, you know, sort of planet-sized sort of uh, super guy. He planned all the strategy and accompanied uh, particularly election, but accompanied uh, the president round with him. And he tells the story of one occasion coming to the UK. And uh, he was part of the presidential entourage staying in Buckingham Palace. And he said it was a bit of a hoot because, you know, he arrived and he's suitcase is taken off and uh, he arrives in his room and he was staying in the, in the palace and everything is sort of laid out very neatly and hung up. Well, that's kind of them to do that. And uh, every morning he would go for a shower and when he would come out, a valet would have laid out his clothes for him. It was just super and very nice. And, um, you know, how very, you know, quite nice having a butler on tap, but he quite enjoyed this. And then on the last morning, um, got everything out that he had needed and he went not have a shower. And his luggage got whisked away to whatever Air Force One to go to the airport the last morning. And uh, he came and got on his smalls uh, and unwrapped, it, unwrapped his socks. And oops, there was only one sock. It wasn't a pair. 
And he thought, oh, no. I say farewell to the queen, and I'm only going to have one sock on. It's just a bit embarrassing, isn't it? You say goodbye to just sort of drag your foot along. Don't, don't sort of, don't stretch it out, and then you sort of expose a bit of flesh. You don't want to do that, so you sort of, sort of, see, I'm just going to have to limp around the palace a bit like this. Uh, and just as he's wondering, how am I going to negotiate this? What is the etiquette for only having one sock? What do you do in, in such circumstances? He says, a knock at the door, and, um, at five, uh, valets came in on the, holding massive, you know, silver platters. You know, the sort of thing that always has a turkey underneath it. These are massive silver platters with the big clonch. Closh. Is that a word? Wow. Hands up if you knew that the big silver thing that goes on top is a closh. I feel very stupid. Okay. Okay. Anyway. Thank you very much. Uh, so you get five, five of these, five of these valets, we'll get there. Five of these valets came in with big, big silver things with a cloche on top. And, uh, uh, they all removed their cloches. And, uh, the one at the front declared, um, declared in the name of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, uh, ruler of the Commonwealth, defender of the faith, we're delighted to present you with several pairs of Royal socks. And um, these are laid out. And this, that is just a bit of a hoot of a story. Because he just quite enjoyed the fact he didn't know he was missing a sock. But the Queen did. Or Butler John, whoever it was, knew. We don't know what we need. Actually, sometimes we think we're missing something and we're missing something else. Who knows, chapter 6, verse 12, what's good for a person? The Lord knows. He knows what we need. Wisdom is found in walking with sorrow. Second, let's pick up the pace. Wisdom is found in accepting our limits. That's uh, the bulk of the chapter, really. 15 to 29, wisdom is found in accepting our limits. uh, Chapter 7, verse 15, here's realism. In this enigmatic life of mine, says the teacher, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness, the wicked living long in their wickedness. Oh, Oh, life doesn't always work out well. Sometimes Philip Green runs off with all the money and lots of people lose their pension pots. And you think, well, how, he's worth 3.2 billion and they don't get a pension. How's that fair? And the taxpayers pick up the bill. Brilliant. Brilliant. How is that fair? I don't know the details. How is that fair? Sometimes the corrupt, the adulterous woman gets the decent guy. How does that work? What? Why is he successful when he's such a cad? Sometimes life is like that, he says. But what do you do in response? Well, it's an interesting response. Verse 16, don't try and control everything. Verse 16, don't be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Don't, don't think, well, uh, sometimes life isn't fair, but I'm going to control everything in my world. I'm going to cross every T, dot every I. I'm going to do everything I can to ensure my own life in every situation. I'm just going to lock everything down. You can't do that. You'll go mad if you try and do that in a slightly over-controlling way. I don't know if there's some link here, but it doesn't make you think of the Pharisees. Jesus attacking the Pharisees for tithing their herbs and spices. <laughs> Cut off 10% of my crest. You know, it's just ridiculous. I'm just going to do all the detail and then I'm going to be absolutely right. No, 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 no. You think you're obsessively thinking you can control life. You can't do that. 
But then don't go to the other extreme, verse 17, and just be immoral. Don't be over wicked. Don't be a fool. Why die before your time? Don't do that. Verse 18, it's good to grasp the one, not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. In other words, walk a path between immorality and obsessively moralizing and seeking to control. Walk by faith in the gospel. Trust the promises of God. And you avoid the extremes of immorality and obsessively thinking you can make yourself righteous and be in control of your own life. Trust the Lord. Trust the gospel, the New Testament would say. The teacher is saying, why do you expect to have all the answers to life? Life's like that. It doesn't, to my mind, to our eyes, it just doesn't fit always. You haven't got all the answers morally or mentally. So morally, verse 20, there is no one on earth who is righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. No one's got it all right morally. Just gives one example, verse 21. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. You know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. Oh, look, when you're at work and you hear someone slagging you off or slagging off the boss, sometimes it's good not to hit the roof, but just to pretend you haven't heard it. He says, because do you know what? You've done it too. So don't come down on people like a ton of bricks. You've said, oh, Giles is such an idiot. That isn't the sum of everything you mean about Giles. You're just in a bad mood with him. Just so, if someone is criticizing you, it's probably not everything they think about you. Just, it's his point. Morally, we don't get it right, even in the small things, just in the sort of criticism. And mentally, we're limited too. Chapter 7, verse 23, I enjoyed this. Chapter 7, verse 23, all this I tested by wisdom and I said... I'm determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. I think that's the truth of my study of Ecclesiastes. I determined to be wise, but it's just beyond me. I think that's how I felt sometimes looking at this book. But it's true of life, he says. You can't conquer wisdom. You can make progress. Sure, that's what he's trying to help us do. But verse 24, whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can understand? I can't. I just tried so hard, but I couldn't understand everything in life. No, you couldn't. We're limited. We'll never have all the answers. But briefly, just at the end, verse 27, 28. I don't think verse 28 is a sexist comment. It's just a poetic way of saying no one. No one. Uh, throughout the wisdom literature, folly is described as a woman. I think he's saying folly. Uh, that's his point. He's really saying no one. No one is wise. The conclusion of the chapter comes, verse 29. This only have I found. God created mankind upright. But they've gone in search of many schemes. God made a good world. But the first humans wandered off departed from the wisdom of God, didn't trust him, and thought, well, we know best, and humanity's been doing that ever since. But you know what the path to wisdom is in saying, I don't know. There's a real limit to how much I can know, and so I trust the Lord. Wisdom is found in walking with sorrow and accepting our limits, last briefly, in trusting our Savior. So where then, if we can't, know for certain what is best for us, verse chapter 6, verse 12. We can't always get it right. 
what's the best path for us to take. What do you do? You trust the Lord. And in particular, you trust the Savior. You get to the pages of the New Testament and it's very evident that Jesus Christ is, well, he's come from outside to bring wisdom to our fallen world. The one who created the world has entered into it and says, listen to me. Humanity's gone astray, but listen to me. I bring you wisdom. Of course, he's known the life in this world. He's the one who, you'd have to say, supremely walked with sorrow. Isaiah would call him the man of sorrows. Who not just the sorrow of observing death, not just the sorrow of being, of observing injustice, but enduring it himself. Oh, he knew sorrows. There's a sense in which I, I'd say you, could, you could suggest he accepted limits. Not my will, but yours be done. He trusted his father. But of course, he is so much more than the teacher of Ecclesiastes. The teacher can say, chapter 7, verse 20, indeed, there's no one on earth who's righteous, not one who does what is right and never sins. But then Jesus walks on the pages of history and the teacher would have said, oh, there is one. There is one wonderfully, who does that. The teacher says, chapter 7, verse 23, I've determined to be wise, I I give up. And yet Jesus Christ, well, Paul would say, in him are all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus, the teacher, says, oh, look, I can give you all the wisdom you need. Maybe not all you want but I can give you all the wisdom you need and wisdom that will change you to be more like me. Wisdom that will keep you until the final day where you can be with me again. And so there's a sense when we come to a chapter such as this, you think, oh, it's frustrating. Life is enigmatic at times. Yeah, it is. But if you want To know, if you want to understand life, or perhaps if you want the key, let me put it this way, if you want the key to understanding life, you go to the locksmith. If you want to know the key to understanding life in an enigmatic world, you go to the locksmith. You go to Jesus. And he doesn't give you the key. He says, now you trust me. And at times I'll shut doors, at times I'll open doors. But trust me. Trust me. When you don't know what the right thing is to do. Trust me, sometimes walking through sorrows will grow you in wisdom. It'll make you long for the future. Sometimes you just need to accept your limits. I can't do this. I can't do it. I don't know what the right way forward is. I have never been moral enough to get to heaven. No, that's right. Trust me. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? Well, look, unusually we're going to finish, uh, or we're going to finish speaking by handing over to, uh, to the musicians. Are they going to come up and they're going to sing? Uh, one man who understood this very well, in one sense, who put some of these truths to music very well, was William Cooper. William Cooper, the poet, the songwriter, 
Christian man. Four times he suffered dreadfully with chronic depression. Three times he tried to take his own life. Uh, his good friend who walked through it all was with him was John Newton. But despite knowing good times and good days from the hand of the Lord and bad days, uh, Cooper was able to write these words that have been of comfort to many, many, many over the years. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, there is a smiling face. Behind the frowns, it looks like they're bad days. There's always purpose. God is working something wonderful. Who knows what is good for a person? The Lord does. But we have to accept that and trust him at times.